Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas Studios, this is the Press Box. Bitch-ass white boy, Tyler Bischoff. It was reported that the Cleveland Indians have decided to remove the term Indian from their name. And Adam Candy. Yet we're cool calling the only black people in Utah the Jazz. On ESPN Las Vegas. Ed Graney is gone today as the Raiders have, well, we'll see how much media availability they actually have. And what Ed can see, we'll catch up with him tomorrow from Raiders practice. Filling in today is Adam Candy. Hello, Adam. Today is going to be better than the last time you filled in because you're not uh, post-operation anymore, are you? Uh, no. God, that would be horrible, right? Okay. If you had to do a colonoscopy and then the medicine stayed there for like five or six days, that'd be horrible. <laughs> no, I'm I'm happy to report that all systems are go, but only as go as I want them to be. Uh, we're going to have to rebrand as some sort of colonoscopy show. You know that, right? I mean, great sponsorship opportunities hey all of you who work in internal medicine listening to the show right now we are 100 percent available for sponsorship contact jared justice somehow the oldest member of this show is the one that has not had the colonoscopy this year no as a columnist for a metro paper he is the one who administers colonoscopies ah <laughs> all right here we go the first bite the first bite is brought to you by the Finley Kia text line. Text 69187 with ESPN to give us your thoughts. Who should feel more confident after two games of the finals? I forgot to mention Jared's back here. But uh, it's the NBA finals, which means there's like a week off in between games. But we've seen two so far, and it is 1-1 after two going back to Boston. Boston stole game one with a terrific fourth quarter, and then Golden State blew out the Celtics after an unbelievable third quarter. So, Adam, who should feel better about themselves going into game three? You know, in past NBA Finals, I would have said Boston because we were still on the 2-3-2 format where Boston would actually have a chance to close the series out at home, but... Now I look at it and say, I think Golden State probably is the one going into this game with more confidence because the Golden State Warriors have basically played one bad quarter in the finals, and that one bad quarter came back to bite them. And other than that, Golden State has been pretty damn good uh, so far. I was going through some real nerdy X's and O's breakdowns of what happened in that third quarter that allowed the Warriors to you know, pretty much waxed the Celtics and uh, gave Ime Udoka the reason to pull his starters in the fourth. And essentially, it was Steve Kerr just kind of reaching into the bag of tricks and using every different way he had to get Steph Curry open. And the Celtics seemed kind of woefully underprepared for it. And the fact that the Celtics have had such trouble in third quarters throughout the season goes to show that it took a miracle fourth quarter for them to win one game. So uh, right now, I would feel a lot better if I were the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, I think the Celtics have more questions to answer right now than the Warriors do. And maybe they do answer them, and after Game 3, it's the complete opposite conversation about, all right, they answered those questions, they won, and they're up in the series. But they, right now defensively, they have given up three big quarters to Steph Curry. And that's going to happen over the course of a series. It's Steph Curry. He's going to have 
his patented Steph Curry five minutes of, okay, he's just better than anybody we've ever seen do this. But you can't let that happen three times in two games. And you can't let that happen multiple times in a single game. And that's going to be what the Celtics kind of have to figure out defensively is why that has happened, why they're struggling to defend Steph Curry so much. And if they can answer that, they're a very good defensive team. They can, the thing about Boston that sort of, I have some confidence that they'll have an answer for it is they can defend ball screens a bunch of different ways. They're not a team that has to play one single coverage. They can do a lot of different things. So they should be able to have some answers going forward. And I think they need to, just give a bunch of different ball screen looks to Steph Curry for the majority of games. Don't give him the same one over and over. But as of now, we haven't seen them answer that question. Now, again, there's two full days off before game three. I would assume they're going to have some answers for it, but I'm curious to see what those are. But as of right now, because Boston's the one that has to basically answer is the one that has to say, hey, these are the problems you have. What are you going to do to fix it defensively? They're the ones that I'd feel worse about and by default feel much better about Golden State winning this series. Well, the flip to that is that Steve Kerr can have the adjustment to the adjustment, and he did that. He absolutely used different screen heights, different people in the screens, different ways of attacking Boston's defense that essentially didn't allow Boston to do what it does best, which is to be able to switch on to everybody, basically one through five, and allow them to defend anybody off, whether they want to switch it, whether they want to play drop, whatever they want to do, the, the Boston Celtics usually have that option because they're so versatile defensively. But Steph Curry breaks that, right? In so many ways, Steph Curry breaks the way the NBA wants to defend because he can hit shots from everywhere, because he's so active off ball. And the breakdowns that I was looking at made a really great point and said, look, you know what happened in this game? Kevon Looney ended up with about six easy looks at the hoop. And when guys like Kevon Looney, who are option number five, six for the Golden State Warriors, are getting easy baskets, you can't stop them. And it's what we talked about before the series. If Wiggins, if Poole, if those guys are going to go off, then you're not going to beat the Golden State Warriors. And the reason Boston in game four, was, or game one in the fourth quarter, was able to do anything was because they didn't just win the non-Steph Curry minutes in the fourth quarter. They blew out the Warriors during that Steph rest period in about the first three or four minutes of the fourth quarter. And then it was an avalanche from that point on that the Warriors couldn't stop. Well, if Poole and Wiggins are doing what they do in terms of offering support, then if you don't win those minutes, you're not going to beat the Golden State Warriors. It's amazing to me that it's 2022 and we can still talk about Steph Curry breaking basketball and breaking defenses. Like he's been, his ability to shoot from so far away was sort of the initial like, oh, we've got to guard somebody well beyond the three-point line. That makes the spacing insane for a defense to cover. And now it's 2022 and we're still having that same conversation. It's it's incredible what Steph Curry has done and the the magnitude of difference it is to defend him versus seemingly everybody else in the league. Well, the great point that Steve Kerr made after the game, and I think the broadcast is starting to pick up on this, and we're not used to it because we don't look at Steph Curry this way. We don't look at him as a little bull, right? We don't look at him as Steph Curry is strong because our narrative on Steph Curry got set a long time ago when his ankles couldn't hold up in the first couple of years in the league. Well, Steph Curry went back into the lab and has become really strong. And so the traditional thing is, what are you going to do with a good offensive player in the NBA? You're going to make him defend, and you're going to make him 
run through screens and you're going to make them just get beaten up to the point where they tire. Well, when Steph Curry's beating you in the third quarter, it doesn't work that way. He's strong. And so you look at 2022 and you're talking about Steph Curry breaking things. Well, Steph Curry has not been one singular thing. He has changed the way he plays the game as well. And so you start with that baseline of he can shoot the lights out at any point from anywhere. You add in the fact that he has the vision of a point guard and understands what's being done to him defensively. And you can't shove him around the way you normally would look at a guy Steph Curry size and just say, knock him down a few times and you'll be fine. Well, no, he actually is strong enough to take it. On the other side, in two games so far, the Celtics are shooting 29.7% between five and nine feet. The Celtics are shooting well when they get all the way to the rim, but they actually haven't gotten there a whole lot in this series. But in that five to nine range, they've taken a bunch of shots there and they're under 30%. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have combined to shoot five of 21 from that five to nine feet distance. In the regular season, the Celtics shot 40.7%. So massively underperforming what they did throughout the course of the year. Do you look at that and view that as Golden State's defense is forcing misses in that range or Boston is simply missing shots and it's a small sample size and they'll probably be fine the rest of the series? I think it's actually somewhere in the middle, Tyler. I think it's two things. One, 40.7% from five to nine feet. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I'm sure you can pull this really quickly. Feels feels and you know how we love to do feels on on this show feels pretty high uh i also think tatum and brown are forcing shots right we saw that in game one especially where jason tatum just could not figure out exactly what he wanted to do and then in game two steve kerr made another adjustment which seems to be kind of our theme here by switching draymond green onto jalen brown and when Draymond Green wasn't trying to pull down Jalen Brown's pants, literally, he was doing it figuratively for the bulk of the game. Uh, Jalen Brown, uh, what, 5 of 19, I believe, uh, in, in game two. So I think some of it also is the Celtic stars are getting really, really challenged by Golden State's defense. 40.7% uh, is dead average. That is uh, 15th in the league in the regular season for shots between 5 and 9 feet. The difference though to me and and initially like watching the games i my initial takeaway was oh those are i mean tatum and brown are going to start making those shots like this is a little bit more about the celtics than it is about the golden state defense but as i was looking into this the warriors were number two defensively in the regular season in opponent field goal percentage in that five to nine feet range they held opponents under 38 percent in that range they were terrific defensively at not allowing teams to make shots from five to nine feet and so that not anything i've necessarily seen but makes me think oh this is this is a little bit about golden state too and so there's a lot defensively that boston's got to figure out but i think this is probably the second key here either a they've got to get all the way to the rim which probably not going to happen too often or b most likely they're going to have to start hitting these shots between five and nine feet and if they do that They've got a legitimate chance to win this series. I'm just curious if they're able to do simply a, hey, Draymond Green, Kavon Looney, whoever it is for Golden State in there is actually good enough to bother shots and prevent you from making a high percentage from five to nine feet. So I think the question then becomes, if you're Boston, can you get away without playing Robert Williams, who clearly is not 
healthy right now, right? Robert Williams is fighting through injury to be out there on the court. And usually he's such a defensive presence that you don't worry about the offense. It's not quite, you know, to the Draymond Green level of this guy's just not going to shoot, but he's clearly not someone who's going to be a threat from outside the paint. So whoever is defending Robert Williams can be in the paint. Often that's going to be a guy like Kevon Looney who can change shots at the rim. But can Boston get away with playing Al Horford at the five consistently, right? Can they go small with Grant Williams, with Derek White, and make their five a shooting threat? Because if you have your five as a shooting threat for Boston and you can pull Golden State's defense away a little bit, then those five to nine foot shots, which, I mean, look, let's talk analytics here for a little bit, right? You want layups first. You want threes second. That five to nine foot range is probably your third best option in terms of where you want those shots to come from. And Boston's got to maximize every edge it can. So it seems to me that Boston's best chance is to try to play a little smaller and make everybody on the floor an offensive threat. The last time you said an NBA player was clearly not 100% was Jimmy Butler, and then he went for 40 or something in game six. So I expect Robert Williams to play his best game of the, the postseason in game three. Well, we know that these are players of similar skill set, so, you know. Well, his best game is not 40. I just mean he's going to be more than two points on one shot or whatever it was in game two. Right. All right, coming up next, we will jump into the NHL playoff because the Colorado Avalanche are going to the Stanley Cup final. Held back from the car, lets it go, tipped on, rebound, score! It's our Terry Lekkinen! And you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here! It's the Press Box with Grady and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas featuring Adam Candy. Adam Candy in today for Ed Grady. You heard the call there. The Colorado Avalanche swept the Oilers by winning game four last night in overtime, six to five, in a game in which the Avalanche trailed three to one entering the third period, took a 5-4 lead before Edmonton tied it at five. And then the Avalanche ended up winning in overtime. So it is a sweep for the Avalanche. They will have some time off before the Stanley Cup starts. And they await the winner of New York and Tampa. But on the Edmonton side, should we consider this a successful season for Edmonton? Because it's the farthest they've been with Connor McDavid. They were one of the last four teams playing. Or is there a level of this that, hey, you got swept by Colorado. And it kind of shows that despite making the conference final, you're nowhere close to actually contending for a Stanley Cup. Hockey loves the term wagon, don't they? <laughs> a team's a wagon, right? That's a compliment. It's like the highest compliment you can give. A wagon. And the Colorado Avalanche are, they're a wagon. There's no question about it. Like, two years in a row, it's the team in the regular season that we looked at and said, wow, who's going to beat them? Last year, of course, it was uh, the Golden Knights. This year, the answer is nobody so far, and it hasn't really been all that close. Uh, Colorado has breezed through the playoffs thus far and might well breeze through the Stanley Cup final. We don't know, but I think this is a success for Edmonton. Uh, you've got to at least get Connor McDavid this far into the year, right? And, and I think it's a question of how far can one hockey player take any team, because Connor McDavid absolutely carried the Edmonton Oilers through the first two rounds of the playoffs, especially against Calgary in the Battle of Alberta. But beyond that, you have a team that is just fundamentally flawed, and it's going to be really easy to look at Mike Smith and blame everything on the goaltender. But there are systemic problems with 
this Edmonton team that go way beyond Mike Smith. It's fascinating that Edmonton has had these problems for so long, and even in the year where they, they actually go deep in the postseason, it, it's still evident. I know Dom LeCision of The Athletic had a story after round two about Connor McDavid's value and basically compared it to the NBA, where it's like this is the first time that we're seeing a superstar-level hockey player carry a team in a way that we're used to seeing it happen in basketball. That, that doesn't usually happen in hockey. And it did for the Oilers for two rounds because he was so good. I mean, Evander Kane was leading the postseason in goals because he was playing with Connor McDavid. So, like, he's incredible. And it's amazing that we're going on, what, what are we on, like eight years now or something like that, where he's been in Edmonton and they still can't figure out how to put, like, competency at enough positions so that Connor McDavid being great leads to a title and not just, oh, good job, you made it to the conference finals, and that's his, that's the ceiling. That's as far as it can go for this team. I, it's, it's impressive that how bad they've been at building around Connor McDavid. Well, and Leon Dreisaitl. I think anywhere else that had Leon Dreisaitl, we would be talking about him on a level that is not at Connor McDavid's height, but pretty damn close for a guy who won the Hart Trophy not all that long ago. So... Look at the Edmonton Oilers over the last, I took a four-season sample, okay? Over the last four seasons, just so I made sure I got one full season outside the bubble. And if you look at their point percentage, okay, they have a 581 point percentage over the last four seasons, which is objectively not bad. Uh, And then you go look at during that time, how have they actually played? So their expected goals against during that time And I go that way because it's the defense, stupid. That's the problem with Edmonton. (laughs) It's the defense. Their point percentage is the best point percentage of any team in the bottom 15 with expected goals against, if that makes sense. So basically, they are one of the worst defensive teams in the league over the last four years. They're in the bottom half, and yet they have somehow managed to win more games than most other teams that are that bad. Here are the teams that have been worse than them in expected goals against over that time. Chicago, Anaheim, Winnipeg, Ottawa, Detroit, Vancouver, the New York Rangers, the Arizona Coyotes. Not exactly Stanley Cup contenders year in and year out. So basically, they need the, the Oilers need to find their Igor Shesterkin too. Oh, and that's going to be the fun part, right, Tyler? Like At some point, they're going to just go through goaltender and hope that that's what fixes it when we know that goaltenders are like the cornerbacks of hockey right like you have no idea if you give one of them big money if you're going to get great performance or average performance and it might change from year to year so the Oilers obviously have bigger problems than what is going on with their goaltender I know Mike Smith became a meme this off uh this postseason and he probably can't be there next year But you fix the goaltender, you fix the whole thing. No, not in Edmonton. Looking ahead, and I maybe this maybe there's an easy answer to this question, but I don't know how easy it is. Who's going to be the best team in the Pacific going into next season? You have Calgary, who won the division in the regular season. You have Edmonton, who then beat Calgary in the postseason, went the furthest in the playoffs. And then there's Vegas, who obviously didn't make the postseason, but is probably going to have the best odds to win the division starting out the season. I mean, you have to probably look at Vegas first, right? We talk plenty about how deep the roster is in terms of star power. And then you look up at Calgary and you say they're probably not keeping Johnny Gaudreau. 
and that's going to change the equation for them, right? There's nobody on the level of Johnny Gaudreau who's going to leave Vegas, right? Riley Smith probably ends up leaving Vegas for a better deal, but Johnny Gaudreau is a better overall player than Riley Smith. So the Golden Knights go into next season probably with the best paper roster. We don't know what the goaltending situation looks like because of the health of Robin Leonard coming into next year, but it has to be Vegas, doesn't it? That's what I would lean towards, but... Again, I the one big question is what exactly do they do in the offseason? Is this uh, simple and kind of Riley Smith walks and they trade Evgeny Dodonov and boom, that's the roster? Or do they go into this offseason and think we need to change it up a little bit more than that or a lot more than that? Like, is there a Max Pacioretty trade? Like, I'm, I'm curious to see what Vegas does, but I still think ultimately they're going to be the favorites going into next season. It's just a... A weird spot where it's a team who didn't make the postseason coming back and saying, oh, yeah, they're definitely the favorite over a team that went to the Western Conference Finals and the team that won the division. I'm just curious. See, I do feel pretty confident in saying it's it's probably still going to be the worst division in hockey again. Like the 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 Tampa Bay Lightning were the three seed in their division. The L.A. Kings made the postseason in the Pacific. So. There's, it's a much easier division, and the fourth best team is probably not going to be any good, and the Golden Knights should have no problem. I said this all last year, but they should have no problem making the postseason again. Do they finish number one? Eh, not always that important in hockey, but probably the favorites to do so. If you were going to trade one of the high-dollar players for the Golden Knights, you just mentioned a potential Max Pacioretty trade, it's got to be William Carlson, doesn't it? I mean, if you look at production and the potential trade return... I would think it's got to be Carlson before Pacioretty. At least when healthy, Pacioretty consistently has performed for this team outside of, what, maybe the first half a season when he was here. So to me, if you're going to look to move somebody, it's going to be William Carlson, who, frankly, since the moment he got the contract, has performed well, but not nearly to the level of what they paid him. Yeah, and if you go sort of positionally, uh, they're wingers. They don't like it's Mark Stone, it's Max Pacioretty, it's Jonathan Marcheseau, and then Dodonov is their fourth best winger right now, and he he's probably getting traded at some point. Like they don't have a lot of great wingers. Center, if you believe in Chandler Stevenson, you can go Eichel Stevenson and, and trade Carlson, and those are your top two centers, and you're probably fine. So I I agree that would probably be ideal. And given the age, maybe you get more back for William Carlson than you would Max Pacioretty, possibly. Granted. If they're trading from a position of we've got to get under the salary cap, they probably won't get anything back because we've seen that for two straight offseasons for the Golden Knights. All right, coming up next, David Roth joins the show. Here's one down the right field on by Escobar, ranging over for it. It's missed by the right fielder, Mazzara, and now the Mets go to the races. Alonzo scores. Tana scores. Escobar's got the cycle. He's at third with a two-run triple. It's 9-5 to five in favor of the Mets as Eduardo Escobar puts up the first Mets cycle in over a decade. We're back to the Press Box with Grady and Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. Joining us now, David Roth from Defector. David, I actually have like Mets questions for you. And before we get into them like actually being good, uh, what was the better weekend injury? Francisco Lindor slamming his fingers in a hotel door or Max Scherzer getting bit by his dog? I, it's certainly Scherzer, but I, I'll tell you before we get into the Mets stuff that like that was a very, very high density of Mets things happening uh, in a brief <laughs> period of time 
And it says something about how good they've been this year that I mostly was able to just let it kind of roll off my back. Because, like, in the past, like, it's not like this is the first time that a Met player has been, like, attacked by a pet. Like, I'm sure that if you were to go back and look at it, that this happened to Jason Vargas, like, three times a month every time he was with the team. It was just, I already felt doom. So I was like, yeah, sure, of course he has a pet snake, and of course the pet snake hates him, you know. But in this case, it was like, it somehow wasn't that bad, and I wasn't that worried about it. Look at you go. What about the complaints of the smell of rat urine at Dodger Stadium? You know what? I'm going to have to, um, I guess I'll play the card that, uh, you know, these guys are real New Yorkers because they know what the smell of rat urine is. (laughs) I don't think I'd be able to tell what animal uh, the urine came from, but that's, I guess that's the difference between professional baseball players and humble bloggers like myself is that I'd probably be like, it smells like pee in here. Whereas like Jeff McNeil can be like a rat, a big one actually. And like be right on top of it. I mean, it feels like that's something that the Oakland A's would be far more trained to be able to figure out than any other baseball players. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the A's that stadium just sort of like going critter mode all year has been, I think that's certainly going to be the most interesting story. Like, having to do with that team. Like, I mean, they probably got a couple more trades to make, but mostly, like, I'm interested in following, like, the possum that showed up in the press box, like, a while back. Like, if he's not, like, interviewed in The Athletic by the end of the year, then, like, everybody covering that team will have failed. (laughs) (laughs) There's too many, like, organisms around uh, for that not to be more of a story. Uh, I know Eno Saris at The Athletic wrote a story about the A's kind of questioning why they're not doing very much to get people into the ballpark. Like, they increase some season ticket prices. They don't do, like, any giveaways. Like, hardly at all. They don't do any promotions. They don't have very many concession stand. And given, like, here in Vegas, we get to see Dave Cobble, their president, come out here and say, we love Las Vegas. We want to move here, like, every month. Um do you believe that it's realistic the A's are purposefully trying to have bad attendance and purposefully trying to make the Coliseum look as bad as possible to help get public money from somewhere to build a stadium? I think that's a really good question. I, I've actually asked it to Ray Ratto, who I work with, because he's usually the sort of the person to go to when it comes to, like, if something bad is happening to the A's, he can not only tell you why it's happening, but like tell you about a time that in like 1976 it happened and it was way worse. And in in this case, I think that like I'm defaulting to they're not really trying to do anything. But it's it, the fact that you have to ask, and I think you're totally right to ask, really says something about how messed up they are. I mean, I I can't tell. Like you know, there's different teams sort of took themselves apart after the lockout ended because they didn't want to have to pay their players. And, like, you know, the A's were not alone in that. And I think that, you know, given the way that the the Reds did it, you can't even say that they were the most egregious about it. Like, they definitely restocked their upper minors and did all the, you know, things you're supposed to do when you're bailing water like that. I don't think, though, that you could see any kind of, like, long-term organizational plan in terms of keeping the team there, trying to make fans care about it like it seems like that part of it has kind of gone by the boards and so now it's like a real estate negotiation with like a rich guy and then dave i guess you say is cobble that like this sort of like creepy you know apparatchik that he's got doing the the dirty work for him but like the baseball team feels 
secondary, like tertiary. Like, I mean, it's like kind of depressing that way. I will say they did one giveaway that I have a coworker who lives in Oakland, and there was it was like an e-waste giveaway where it was basically like if you brought them like a broken phone or like a fax machine, they'd give you two tickets to the game. And my coworker didn't know that it was two tickets, so he just like grabbed some whatever, like old USB cables and like a busted printer and went to the stadium and wound up with like eight tickets to a game and then had to try to find seven other people in his life that would want to go to an A's game. And I think he just wound up sort of eating two of them. But he has like fewer broken printers in his home now. It sounds to me like if we were to put a new challenge onto something like the Amazing Race, right? Like you should fly them all to Oakland and then make them go through an e-waste giveaway. And then the challenge should be, <laughs> you don't get to go to the next stop until you have found seven people to go to an Oakland A's game. <laughs> you got to find the Travelocity gnome sitting in the upper deck of the Coliseum. <laughs> it's up there, but there's <laughs> tens of thousands of empty seats. Yeah, I think that actually would be a pretty solid bit. I would love to hear uh, that the host of The Amazing Race, who has the most unplaceable accent I've ever heard, just like um, introducing Frankie Montas and like <laughs> whatever A's they could dragoon into showing up in the show. All right, David, can you explain why the Angels suck? I want to. I want to say it's me because I, I felt like I should have done that off the top. Because we did a couple weeks ago, you were like, "Is this team good? Is this team good? Is this team good?" And I said the Mets were good. I said I didn't think the Yankees were that good. You know, so I was half. And half, and then you asked about the Angels, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" And I think they've literally won once since I said that on the radio. And I know it's not entirely me, but I know also that uh, you know your show has a good reputation, even though I don't. And I gotta, um, I gotta own that one. I don't know what's the matter with them. I mean, I guess it's the bullpen right now, but it it feels like I, there's a part of me that knows that as long as Otani and Trout are in that lineup most of the time that they're going to be hanging around the bottom of the wild card race, even if the rest of it is bad. And yet like a team that loses, what is it like 10 or 11 in a row now? And something was like 16 of the last 17. Like that's not a, that's the reds. Like that's not a good team, you know? And so I don't know what, how to sort of square all of that. I know it comes out in the wash over the course of 162 game season, but it's, I don't think it's, wrong to look at a team that is losing the way that they're losing and worry that something's really not cooking right. Like, they spent some money on pitching, and they spent money on the bullpen. They added Aaron Loop, who was with the Mets last year. And, like, all of these guys have been hit really hard. And I don't think that, like, they've lost it. And I don't think that the, you know, you can't say that the coaching or the pitch design or any of this other stuff is more backwards than any other team. Like, I don't think it's leading the revolution, but... It's not, you know, so oafish that that explains it. And yet, like, it's, it feels wrong to say, like, yeah, all their players are playing bad at the same time. But that does kind of seem to be it. Like, Mike Trout doesn't go through many weeks where he doesn't get a hit, you know, and he just finished one. David, it kind of feels like if, we, if our explanation for how is Artie Marino fixing the pitching is Aaron <laughs> Loop... And the weekend at no. Bernie's version of Noah Syndergaard, like yeah. maybe they haven't done enough to, I don't know. It, it, the whole thing with Artie Moreno feels to me like he got bullied by jocks in high school. And so he decided that the best thing he could do was to trap some of the best athletes he could ever find inside this hell loop in Anaheim <laughs> where they never are really good, but they're just good enough to believe they might be able to do something. And every time they get close, he's like, ha ha, you guys who swirled me, you're going down. 
Yeah, it, there does have. There's definitely an element of it where it's like you do get paid very well, but like you're definitely making the choice when you go there that you're just sort of like, well, the best offer I got was from the team that plays in literal purgatory, so I'm just going to go there for eight years, and everyone's going to sort of forget about me. And then, like when I'm 32, I'm going to get traded to you know whatever the Tigers midseason, and everyone's going to be like, oh, Anthony Rendon, I remember that guy from before with the Nats. <laughs> and it is really strange to see like the way that that like sort of the force field of that organization just lowers the ceiling on everybody that like, even for trout, who's like, you know, the best player in the majors, basically during my lifetime, it should not be that easy to forget that he's playing major league baseball. And yet it really winds up that way. The idea that they improved their pitching by uh, adding aftermarket New York Mets is uh, certainly like when you say it like that, yeah, that's not going to work for you. The Syndergaard thing, I, I feel bad about. I, I did see a little bit of him, and he's like a like a pitch to contact, like sinker slider guy now. Like it just seems like the fastball, like the pilot light blew out. I feel bad about that. I mean, I feel like that's definitely one that you could put on the Mets more than on him. They just don't know how to rehab Tommy John injuries, and that I, I, if Noah Syndergaard is like a guy that's going to be having to pick his spots and throw in ninety one, then that's a bummer. Uh, that's a one-year commitment. They're definitely paying Aaron Loop for a few years, so I, I hope he, I guess, what it turns back into Aaron Loop. This doesn't sound like something, we're not talking about a playoff team here <laughs> as soon as I feel myself saying stuff like that. They added playoff spots. They're going to be fine. They're going to get yeah. 80 wins. Right. It's going to be no problem. He's David Roth from Defector. David, as always, we appreciate it, and enjoy the Mets being good. I'm going to, yeah, I might have another couple weeks of it, so I'm going to try to make the most of it. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Thanks, David. So there is David Roth. Coming up next, the segment you've all been waiting for since you heard Adam Candy's voice. It's our umpire segment. You might have seen him at your local YMCA arguing with a U-12 coach. Let's tee it up with Adam. Wait, it's a ref segment? Wouldn't it make more sense if it was a golf segment? Whatever. Let's tee it up with Adam Candy. Our resident referee, Adam Candy, filling in for Ed Graney today, which means we have questions about referees. The first one I want to start with, Draymond Green, game two, has a technical foul already. Into the second quarter, he and Jalen Brown get tangled up. And in the process of standing up, Draymond Green pulls down on Jalen Brown's shorts. Eh, there's some other, eh, a little bit of shoving, I guess. Did Draymond Green deserve a second technical foul? And did he get away with that because he had already gotten the technical foul earlier in the game? The hard part for me at this point is figuring out where the line is for Draymond Green. And I think Draymond Green knows that. He absolutely knows that getting a second technical foul is something the officials don't want to do because they don't want to kick somebody out of a finals game, obviously. And so he talked after the game about the fact that he knew he had a technical foul and that wasn't going to change the way that he plays. He's essentially saying to the officials, I'm going to play the way I play. You do what you need to do. And so now the officials are in the spot of how do you set the line for this guy with all of the complaining and all of the baiting and all of the things that he does, right? And uh, Joe Varden from The Athletic wrote a really good column basically saying that Jason Tatum and company going over and pulling 
Jalen Brown and Draymond Green away might have lost that game for the Celtics because they he was arguing that they were on their way to both getting technicals. And that, of course, would have been Draymond Green's second. And so I think that there's a case to be made that they might actually have helped the officials out of that situation by separating it as quickly as they did. Okay, from the perspective of the referee, how should Draymond Green be handled? Like, should there be a swift change? And hey, you're given the same leeway that every other player is given. And if he gets ejected in four straight games, then so be it. Or like, how how do you approach this? How do you handle, hey, this guy's clearly getting away with things that other players would be teed up for, but he doesn't. It's a league-wide decision, right? This is something that's going to be decided at the league level because the NBA at the end of the day is still an entertainment product. And when you have an entertainment product, you need your entertainers. And in the end, it's still, even though it's athletic competition, it is we need our faces to be part of this game. And Draymond Green is one of those faces. So this is a decision that I don't think each referee can make individually. I don't even know if the head of officiating can make the decision individually in when it comes down to it Draymond Green has kind of found a leak in the system right he's kind of found a way to say yeah I I don't think you're willing to kick me out of every game and so I'm willing to push the line as often as is possible and look he gets one technical foul he doesn't really seem to back off it right like he just realizes that for him getting a technical foul is going to be part of doing business and Referees don't want to give a technical foul immediately for multiple reasons. One, you don't want to look like you're hunting the guy. Two, you don't want to box yourself in for the rest of the game, right? As soon as you give the first technical, now you can't go and warn the guy for something that he did. You already gave him a technical foul. So now if he's someone someone where you know they potentially are going to escalate for you, you're looking at it and saying, well, I probably want to try to a, de-escalate it before I give him a technical, then B, maybe warn him, and now C, give him a technical. And yet a lot of the behavior that you see, I think fans would look at it and say, I feel like other guys get whacked for that. Other topic I want to get to you with, we're going back to a baseball game on Sunday, the Royals and the Astros. We had a four-run game in the ninth inning with two outs. The Royals had Michael Taylor at the plate, nobody on base. Ryan Presley was pitching for the Astros. A 2-0 pitch ran inside on Michael Taylor. Did not hit him, but had he not gotten out of the way, it definitely would have hit him. The home plate umpire then called all the umpires together and decided to warn both dugouts and Ryan Presley. Ryan Presley took exception to this and started yelling at the umpire, like, what did I do, essentially? And Ryan Presley was ultimately thrown out of the game despite not having actually hit anybody. Do you believe this was handled properly? How do you think this should have played out? I don't envy the job of Major League Baseball umpires having to either figure out intent or try to assign it, even if it's not there for the safety of the game. So that situation should not have led to Ryan Presley getting thrown out without question. And the way that Vic Carapaza and that crew handled it, When you get together like that, when you stop the game to bring everybody together and the attention is all on you in that spot, there's an expectation that you're going to do something coming out of it, right? We talk about it all the time that when we go in basketball, when we go to the replay monitor, when we slow it down to have a conversation, there's an expectation, right or wrong, 
that there's going to be something that comes out of it, right? Otherwise, people start saying to you, well, why did you stop the game for nothing? Well, you didn't necessarily stop the game for nothing. You just wanted more information to try to get the call right. But if you're Big Carapaza in that spot, you're the home plate umpire. Make a damn choice. Make a choice. Was it intent or was it not? Do you need to manage the game or do you not? Then just give the warnings if you need to give the warnings. But to make a big damn stop and talk to everybody show about it, I can understand why Ryan Presley was upset. Now, I'm going to unsurprisingly defend a little bit of this from the umpire's point of view. If you're Ryan Presley and it's the ninth inning of a four-run game, just go pitch. There's no reason to argue that, right? Like at that point, you're trying to win a moral argument with someone who has all the power, right? You're not going to win that argument. Uh, Should Vic Carapaza potentially have had a little longer fuse with Ryan Presley? Yeah, probably so. My favorite part of the entire situation uh, was Martin Maldonado, the Astros catcher, realizing that his pitcher might be getting tossed because he's still yelling at the ump, trying to put his glove over Ryan Presley's face to stop him from talking. Oh, I, dude, I can remember so clearly back in high school, I, I was actually someone who couldn't stop himself from talking to the referees. And I remember... <laughs> being in a volleyball game where I was starting to look up at the referee and like make a big motion of how he had missed the call. And one of my teammates, actually still one of my friends, put two arms around me in a bear hug, took me and swung me the other direction away from him. And to the point where he did it and I had like two seconds to calm down, I just I just very quietly said to him, yeah, thanks, I needed that. So wait, wait, wait. You went from he yelling at refs hug. to becoming the ref? Oh yeah, oh absolutely. Yep, yep. I, I I decided that the best way for me to handle uh, my aggression problems with umpires was to go take it. I'm just a Catholic boy looking to flog himself. You were you were being the change you wanted to see in the world. Good for you.